Now, <clears throat> before we start, I have to ask a question. How many of you believe God's smarter than we are? <laughs> Amen? Gosh, I'm concerned some hands didn't go up. God is wise, he knows all, and therefore, let me ask this follow-up question. How many of you believe he can write a book, preserve a book, and protect a book? Amen. Listen, if he can speak all things into existence, he can make sure that this remains as he intended, and he has done just that. Amen? Amen. So would you open your Bibles? Are you ready? Yes. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Galatians 1 will be our text, verses 1 through 10 will be those we examine specifically. Now, a little bit of intro and background. Galatians is often referred to as a mini book of Romans by scholars. And like Romans, it is rich with the wonder and beauty of the gospel, yet it is replete with doctrinal issues and insights that allow a Christian to live in a manner that is first pleasing to God and secondly, fulfilling to them. Now, there are some distinctive features about the book of Galatians. The first being that unlike Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Thessalonians, Galatians is not addressed to a church in a city. It is addressed to a region in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It was settled in the 3rd century B.C. by the Gauls, or the Celtic people, and it was conquered by Rome, and in Paul's day, it was a Roman colony. Now, the letter to the churches of Galatia was likely authored somewhere around 48 A.D. We know this because Rome, or Galatians is heavy with warnings about the Judaizers, those who want to put people under the law, those who want people to be circumcised, those who want people to follow a kosher dietary restriction. And we believe and know that it was written before 50 AD because in 50 AD was the content of Acts chapter 15, where Paul had gone before the Jerusalem council and was examined over these very things. He certainly would have made mention of that moment in Galatians had this been written after 50 AD. So one other thing to mention before we dig in that is unique to the letter of the Gal to the Galatian churches, and that is that in every other epistle that Paul wrote to a church in a specific city, he offered either a word of thanks or a word of encouragement or praise to that particular city. Here, he does not. He cuts right to the chase because of the severity of the issue that is covered in the book of Galatians, particularly the first chapter, and the issue that was of such severity he would forego a prayer or even praise for the church in that region was that the gospel was being perverted by false teachers. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> now in Revelation 3, 14 to 17, the final of the seven letters to the seven churches in the same region, that being Asia Minor, the Lord says this to the church of the Laodiceans. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen or the so be it the faithful and true witness, the beginning or the initiator of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you 
out of my mouth. Now, there's just no way to make that be something positive. <laughs> I will vomit you out of my mouth. Here's why. Because you say I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, <clears throat> excuse me, and naked. <clears throat> this is not Rona. Yeah. <laughs> this is ice cream. <clears throat> I had an ice cream last night and it messes with me all the time. So long story, forget it. Now, <clears throat> Jesus had no word of commendation for the church at Laodicea. Neither did he have a word of commendation for the church at Sardis, which he said was spiritually dead. Now, they had a name or a reputation that were alive, but Jesus said, you're actually dead. The Laodicean Christians thought they had no need of anything and therefore had everything, and they did not know of their spiritual condition of being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Paul is going to tell the church at Galatia, the church is, I should say, that they are in grave danger because false teaching is spreading through the region, which we're going to examine in coming weeks. Now, what I believe Paul begins his time in Galatians with is going to be our title this morning, and that is simply, he makes a, here we go, the declaration of dependence. The declaration of dependence. We are not interested in being independent of God. We are dependent upon God for all things. That was really weak. Come on, this is a small room. There ought to be more amens than that. We depend upon God for everything. Now, Paul is going to declare that he is an apostle. And then he's going to declare the sufficiency of the gospel. And then he's going to declare the dangers of false teaching and teachers. And then it's going to declare our complete dependence upon the finished work of Christ on the cross and his divine authority as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here we go. Would you stand and read with me the opening words of this mini Magna Carta of the Christian faith? Galatians chapter 1. We'll start with verses 1 through 5. Galatians 1 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We could just read that half a dozen times and go home. But you should be so lucky. <laughs> Father, we ask now your blessing on your word. We thank you for this magnificent book. And Lord, before we even begin to dissect it, we want to give you glory, praise, and honor for answered prayer. Thank you that you hear us. Our cries were heard in the throne room of grace. And you brought us to this place where we can meet together indoors, air-conditioned, and study your book to be equipped for the work of ministry that, as Charlie said, we may go out and reach the world for you. We thank you for this opportunity this morning. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Now, Paul opens with the introduction that he does because his apostleship was constantly being called into question because he was not one of the original 12 apostles. Now, an apostle was a title that was given specifically and exclusively by Jesus to a select group of representatives from the wider company of the disciples. He chose 12 in number and named them apostles. And in uh, Luke 6.13 and Mark 3.14, he sent them out into the world to preach the gospel. Now, that means that an apostle is one personally chosen, called and commissioned by Jesus. Amen? and therefore authorized to teach in the name of Jesus. Now, this group was small. This group was unique to that age. And the word apostle in the scripture is not applied to Christians generically like we would find sister, brother, or brethren, or believer, or saint. It identifies a select group of men from the first century at the church's birth. Now, in, now, please understand, the word apostle and the office of apostle are two different things. The word apostle simply means sent one. Yeah. Aren't we all sent out into the world to preach the gospel? Yeah. We're all sent ones in that sense. But in the sense of a book of Acts, first century church, apostle, it's always identified with a capital A. There was an exclusive and unique group handpicked by Jesus at that time. Yeah. Now... 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Peter, or Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once." of whom the greater part remained in the presence. In other words, on one occasion, 500 people saw Jesus at the same time, and most of them are still alive, is what Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. But he said, some have fallen asleep or died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was, what's the next word? Is it up there? He was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now, Note that Paul identifies one of the qualifications for apostleship as seeing Jesus in resurrected form. Even though he was an exception to the others in that he did not see Jesus in resurrected form during the 40 days Jesus remained on earth after his resurrection. Now again, apostle was a special term reserved exclusively for the 12 and Paul whom the risen Christ had personally appointed and Paul was added to their number. Now there can, listen closely, there can therefore be no apostolic succession. Has anybody ever heard that term? Yeah. Apostolic succession. There is no apostolic succession because the apostles, capital A apostles, were limited and appointed by Jesus and that's how the church age began according to Ephesians. Now we do need to adhere to apostolic doctrines. Amen? Because they're the ones that authored the scripture. They're the ones that were appointed to write down the things that we enjoy that are called the New Testament. Now, this is why Paul declares that his apostleship did not originate with men, because no apostleship originates with men. He's saying, I wasn't appointed as an apostle by any official body, such as the leaders in Jerusalem or even in Antioch, where the church was first called Christians, neither did his, did his apostleship 
begin or originate through any man, not Ananias who prayed over him and had his eyes open, not Barnabas who was initial in the first phase of Paul's ministry. And listen, let me just say this as a word of caution for all of us. There is a group today who claim to be apostles in the same line of Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, and the others. And Matthew obviously would be included and the other 12. Now, the fact is they have appointed each other. Now, that's outside the biblical guidelines right there. Yep. Amen? Yep. Apostles aren't appointed by one another. They're not appointed by a board. They're not appointed by a church group. They're not appointed by any human being. Apostles are exclusively appointed by Jesus Christ himself in a face-to-face -face encounter. Now, these people say they have met the biblical criteria for being an apostle. In other words, either they ascended into heaven, which Jesus said nobody's done that, or Jesus descended down to earth to meet them. When the Bible says he's actually seated at the right hand of majesty on high, living daily to make intercession for you and I. That means that's where he is all the time until he comes to meet us in the air and no moment and twinkling of an eye, and maybe that'll happen today. Yes. Amen? Amen? I'm good with that, aren't you? Yes. Now, about this group that claims to be apostles today, I want to say one word, and then I want to make one comment, and then we'll move on. About those who claim to be apostles today, the one word is nonsense. Yes. Amen? Yes. Nonsense. Now, the one statement I want to make is nowhere... Does the Bible report that there's going to be a second group of apostles before the second coming of Christ? The Bible makes no mention of another set of apostles. The church age began with apostles, moved to prophets and teachers, and now we have the age in which we enjoy where we rightly divide the word of truth in church settings like this. Now, we're going to see why this is so important to establish when we arrive in our middle section. Now, Paul, having established his apostleship, having, he now greets the brethren uh, who were traveling with him, and then he formally addresses them through his traditional greeting of grace and peace. And you will find that in all of his epistles. He then points them to the source of grace and peace, which is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he follows that with how grace has been manifested through the person of Christ, giving himself and the resulting peace of being delivered from this present evil age. How many of you feel like saying every day, come on, come get us, get us out of here, get us out of here before November 3rd. Amen. Amen. And what potentially lie beyond. Listen, we need to be praying for this election because there are crooked, wicked, evil people in places of power who have no qualms about stealing an election so they can get in places of power. That's the age we live in. Listen, that's not some weirdo conspiracy theory. That's fact. Listen to them talk. They lie constantly through their teeth without hesitation, and they don't care whether it's true or not. The former president's uh, wife, the former first lady, Michelle Obama, said that all of these riots and lootings are fake news. <laughs> well, all the fake news channels are carrying the riots, uh, riots and looting, or the riots and rooting, whichever one you want to say. 
and listen, we need to understand this is all part of this particular line of thinking that they have embraced. So it was authored by Saul Alinsky and the Rules for Radicals. And that is you just keep telling a lie, you just keep telling a lie, you keep telling a lie, and pretty soon people will believe it. Has that happened? Yes. It's happened in our country. We need to pray for our country. Amen? Amen. Now, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. John the Beloved, another apostle, says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, a messianic title, that life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you for what purpose? That your joy may be full. Now, John's making the same declaration of dependence that Paul is making here in that he says all the blessings and benefits of being a Christian, including eternal life, depend exclusively on the word of life or Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, the manifestation of God in human flesh, whom John had seen, had touched, had bore witness of and declared as the source of fellowship that is exclusive to Christians alone. Aren't you glad that we are a family? We are a body of believers. I've been all over the world, and it is just a wonderful thing to experience someone where you can't understand a single word they're saying, nor can they understand what you're saying, but you love them instantly, and you sense the Holy Spirit instantly, and you have communion or koinonia instantly just because they know God, just because they have the same spiritual father. There is nothing in this world that is compared with being a Christian. Then there's a fellowship that is exclusive to us alone. Amen? Amen. Now, here's the first thing I think we need to take note of as we open our study of Galatians. Listen this morning. There is nothing anyone can do to make themselves worthy to be saved. There's nothing anyone can do to make themselves worthy to be saved. Aren't you glad that Jesus saves the unworthy? Yes. <laughs> well, I'll take that. But listen, salvation is dependent solely on the manifested grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ who came into the world for the express purpose of dying for the sins of the whole world. Now listen, some question, uh, religious groups question, why in the world would God have a son? Why in the world would God send his son into the world? Why would he send him in the likeness of sinful flesh? Well, listen, as God, who Jesus is eternally existent, amen? amen. He is and always has been God. Therefore, he did not have the capacity for death. It was of necessity that he wrap himself in a human body so he would be capable of dying for the sins that you and I have committed. Listen, it was part of the plan before the foundations of the world. It had to happen or you and I couldn't be saved. Now, I want to draw your attention to something about the many paradigm shifts that we have been experiencing as a world. It is the belief of multitudes today that no one has a right to have more than anyone else and therefore all privilege must be eliminated for the world to be the utopian state that they desire that it should be. It has a name, it's called socialism. Yeah. Now, 
I want to say this as delicately as I can because you guys all know I'm always concerned about political correctness. <laughs> this is of the devil. It's of Satan. Why? Because Satan doesn't care about people. He doesn't care whether you live or die. He doesn't care what you have. He is using a socialistic mindset to set the stage for his main assault which is the disassembly of the Christian church. Now, therefore, in socialism, no religion has the right to claim supremacy over another. As a matter of fact, because of the wars, how many have ever heard the statement that all the wars in history have been fought over religion? Have you ever heard that statement made? What was the religious fight in World War I? Two? I can't think of it. It's a lie, right? but has it been sold for generations now? That religions are the reason for all the wars that have taken place throughout the course of history? Now listen, as Paul made his point in his opening statement, we have to understand that Paul was given a great privilege as an apostle. He was one among 13, the original 12, and then Paul was added later. And between he and the rest of Christianity, he had a privilege that none of us enjoy. None of us are apostles. Paul was an apostle, and it came with privileges. Billions of other Christians are not. Peter, James, and John had privileges. The other nine disciples didn't have. They were Jesus' inner circle. They got to see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were able to be with him when he went and prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. In heaven, there are high and low-ranking angels. There are degrees of rewards for us when we arrive in heaven based on our earthly efforts to bring God glory. Now, that tells us that in God's economy, he has the right, because he's smarter than us, and more powerful than us, and everything that he does is right. Everything that he does is right. Therefore, in his economy, he can assign some as apostles and others not. God can do that, right? God does not buy into this egalitarian thinking of our day, even though he views us all of equal value in that Christ died for everyone. Amen. He died for the sins of all people. So how do we know Satan is behind this push for globalism and egalitarianism? Egalitarianism is basically that everybody has to have the same thing, at least in its uh, current definition. In Revelation 13:8, we're told all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Did you catch that all who dwell on the earth will worship him? All will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The him mentioned here is the Antichrist. All the world who are not written in the lamb's book of life before the beginning of time are going to worship the Antichrist. His false prophet will play a role in that, and they are both empowered by Satan, and they bring about a single world religion which executes all who reject the mark of the beast, which identifies one as a beast worshiper. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul reminds us that one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. God has given each of us gifts, yes. and they differ from one another. Right? But who determined the distribution? God. He does as he wills. Now, since Satan is well aware that no one deserves to be saved and that the Christian faith is the one true soul-saving, heaven-accessing faith 
It is under attack under the guise of being unfair and inconsiderate to other religions. Now, this is why Paul started the letter establishing his credentials as an apostle, because the church was founded upon apostolic doctrines that they learned directly from Jesus. John would also say in 1 John 1, 5 to 7, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light can be a metaphor for wisdom. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? One another. There's that exclusive fellowship to the Christian again. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from some sin. From all sin. Listen, salvation from hell and access to heaven is dependent upon and available through exclusively Jesus Christ. The word of life. God manifested in the flesh and Satan works tirelessly to pervert that because there's nothing that he can do to stop it. So he seeks to try and change it. And he even has those inside the church that he is trying to use. No one can do anything to make themselves worthy to be saved. It is the gift of God through the grace of God manifested in the person of Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, let's take a peek at verses 6 through 8. Now, Paul gets into the heart of the letter. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to, what's the next word? Pervert. It means to make into its opposite, the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be what? Now, pretty easy to spot that's a bad thing. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Now, as we mentioned in our intro, here's where Paul would traditionally pray for or give a word of encouragement or praise to the recipient city of the letter. But here he gets right to the point that he is in wonder. That's what the word marvel means. He's stunned that this church so young would so soon turn away from him who called them to a false gospel. Now, part of why I wanted to introduce the egalitarian mentality that dominates our world today is because of this sentence. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you. And the reason this is important is what follows. Paul says, you turn from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Now, it is popular today to say that as long as you believe in Jesus, the rest doesn't matter. Yeah. You heard that? Yeah. Doesn't matter. You don't need to repent. All you need to do is believe. And thus, this makes anything that labels itself Christian as valid. Now, Paul makes it clear that to follow a different gospel is to turn away from God the Father and the grace that was manifested through the person of Christ. Now, in Acts chapter 2, 40 to 42, we're told and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized 
And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, meaning to their number, and they continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine, or doctrine, remember, means teaching, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, Paul is writing, again, about 13 years after this to the churches in Galatia, telling them that being delivered from the present evil age, which would be the same as a perverse generation that Peter spoke of, is through the same apostolic doctrines because there is no other gospel. Amen. 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 There is no other gospel. There is no other testament of Jesus Christ. Amen. Remember, testament means witness. And the Book of Mormon is called another testament of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus has a witness different than that of the New Testament. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Now, listen, in light of what we're studying, I think we'd be fools not to identify some of the things that are drawing people away so we can leave this place and go out and rescue them with the truth. Amen. Amen. So listen, I'm not trying to offend anybody or pick on anybody. But listen, the truth is what the truth is. And we need to uncover it and expose things that are leading people to hell in our day. Now listen this morning. Acts 2, 36 to 39 Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, Peter's preaching again, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. His first answer is repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you, your children, and to all who are afar off. In other words, Peter's saying, this is how it's going to work until Jesus comes back for us. It's for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, this is what Peter preached that led to 3,000 souls being saved, and this is the message that continues to save today. And there is no other. There is no other gospel. And Paul then adds, if an angel, others, or even if we preach another gospel, it will lead to being cursed or anathema. Now, anathema simply means devoted to God without the hope of being reconciled. It would be a phrase used to, in association with an animal that was sacrificed. It would be offered to God, yet it would not be reconciled to God or redeemed itself. A gospel that denies the resulting repentance from our salvation is not the gospel of the apostles. A gospel that was delivered via an angel named Moroni to Joseph Smith is not the gospel of the apostles. Later, we're going to see that the gospel that requires circumcision or dietary restrictions and observance of the law is not the gospel of the apostles. Hello? Now, remember, the Apostle Paul was handpicked by Jesus for a specific purpose, which included penning 13 New Testament epistles. And here he says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that false gospels are a turning away from him who calls us into the grace of Christ. Who calls us? Well, 
John 6.44 says, No one can come to the Father unless they are drawn by Him. God is the one who draws us to Jesus. Amen? Amen. And listen, these other messages are drawing people away from Him. So listen, no, you cannot believe and behave in ways that contradict apostolic doctrines and be saved in spite of those beliefs and behaviors. When God saves you, He saves the whole person. He saves your physical body. Listen, I've been uh, very open about the fact that I was a drunk for a long time, abused drugs and all that. And, you know, the Lord cleaned me up. And listen, he didn't save me because I cleaned up my act. He saved me and then he cleaned up my act. And that's what he does with everyone. Listen, when you come to know Christ, he's going to start working on you. Until the day of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ or when Christ comes for the church or for the individual. Now, here's the second element of our declaration of dependence. Now, this is kind of goofy, but it needs to be. You ready for this? The saving power of of the gospel is in the gospel. I used to work for the Department of Redundancy Department. The saving power of the gospel is in the gospel. Now, that may sound ridiculously obvious, but the fact is some today call something the gospel that has either additions or subtractions to it, and yet they use the same name to describe it. And according to Paul, that violates the rules of Scripture and robs the gospel of its power. And Paul said in Romans 1, 16 to 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That's simply a chronological statement. For, what are the next two words? For? In it. In it. In, it. in what? In the gospel of Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, here's a quote from Habakkuk 2, 4 the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New, the just shall live by faith. Now, the gospel of Christ has in it the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes it. It reveals the righteousness of God and that the just shall live by faith in God. Remember, faith requires an object. It is not a power in and of itself. You can't by faith have that speaker float off the ground, even though there are demonic forces that cause those sort of things to happen or, you know, the important things in life like bending a spoon with your brain. That has improved the world greatly. Now, listen this morning. It is important to know someone's dictionary when you listen to their vocabulary, especially when you're talking about biblical things. There is a group, we've already mentioned them, they call themselves today the Latter-day Saints, which means everybody before them were ain'ts, since they're now the saints. And they will talk to you all day long. I had extensive conversations with a 38-year Mormon who walked away finally and uh, died recently, and now I believe is in the presence of the Lord because of Jesus Christ. And his salvation was dependent solely upon him, not works or missionary trips. But the Mormons will talk to you about Elohim. Elohim is a biblical character, right? Or a title, I should say. We find it instantly in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim, the plurality of God, the plural nature of God, though he is singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
created the heavens and the earth. Now, to us, Elohim means something magnificent and significant. To the Mormon, they use the same term, Elohim, and that means a human being who achieved God's status, who then was given rule over one specific planet. That planet is this one. He had two sons named Lucifer and Jesus who submitted their plans. That's why Jesus is referred to as the spirit brother of Lucifer. They each submitted their plans to redeem the world. Uh, Elohim, like Jesus, planned better than Lucifer. And the two brothers have been fighting ever since over this planet. And that's found in Second Opinions chapter 4, <laughs> verse 666. Amen? <laughs> now... They use the same vocabulary, but their dictionary is different. And, and listen, a, a lot of people have a hard time saying anything about the Mormons because they're really nice people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They are nice people. I mean, these, some of these boys that used to come to our house until they figured out probably not a good place for them to go. <laughs> Good-looking kids. Nice boys. Friendly, polite, and all those things. But listen... According to our Bible, Elohim is the uncreated and eternal supernatural being who occupies the office of God, which means the supreme being, which there can be only one if you are supreme. He has a name, and his name is Yehovah, and he is our God. Amen? Amen. Now that means, therefore, now listen close. The Jesus of Mormonism is the son of a former human being who became a god named Elohim. And he has a, another uh, name that they have assigned to him. And since the gospel is centered on Jesus, and their Jesus is different than our Jesus, can the Mormon version of the gospel therefore save your soul since it's a different Jesus? No, it cannot. Now, if you turn away from the gospel to another, you have turned away from the one who calls us into his grace that is found in Christ. It is actually not another gospel at all. It is a perversion of the true gospel because the saving power of the gospel is in the gospel. Amen? Amen. Now, let's wrap up our time this morning with 9 and 10. I was going to read 2 Corinthians 13, 9 and 10. Those are good too, but I'll get on the right page now. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, say anyone, Anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be anathema. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a what? Bond servant of Christ. Now, some say Paul is saying and implying things that are inconsistent with loving and compassionate and merciful Christianity. And the grace and mercy that he often wrote of and that Jesus taught, he is completely acting in the opposite manner himself. Now, the reality is in Romans 9, 1 to 5, Paul writes this, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For listen to this, for I could wish that I myself were anathema, were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom all whom of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. 
Amen. You can hardly say Paul is a man with an absence of compassion. When he says about his own countrymen, I would rather be cut off and go to hell myself if the Israelites would be saved. This was not a lack of Christian compassion on Paul's part because Paul knew that to corrupt the gospel was to destroy the way of salvation and lead people to hell. And therefore, he was going to be aggressive in his response to what was happening to the churches in Galatia, Asia Minor. Now, I want you to think about this as well. You still here? Yes. Luke 17, 1 and 2. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than, he should, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Who was speaking? Who was the he here? It was Jesus. Jesus said, you know what? Instead of leading little ones astray, it'd be better for that person to have a huge grinding stone used to, uh, in, the, in the mill to be tied around somebody's neck, which would weigh many, many times more than the person, and for them to be thrown into the sea and drowned is the obvious implication. Is Jesus being unmerciful? No, no he's protecting the gospel. He's doing the same thing Paul is doing. Revelation 2, 1 and 3, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, listen closely now. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them what? Liars. liars. Jesus is calling a group of phony apostles liars, and he is commending the church at Ephesus for doing the same. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now listen, we are not being unchristian when we say those who claim to be apostles and are not are lying. That's not unchristian. That's biblical. Jesus did it himself. And listen, here's the other thing I think that's so bizarre concerning the age in which we live. Jesus commended the church at Ephesus for what many condemn Christians for doing today. Jesus commended the church at Ephesus for what many condemn Christians for doing today, like saying, stay away from that group. Stay away from that religious belief system because it is a perversion of what truth that can save your soul actually is. And warning other people is part of our job as Christians. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. This is a mandate to the Christian church. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Yes. Now, is someone with a false gospel who is a liar about their own position before God someone that you want other people listening to? No. Should we expose them? Absolutely. We're not being unchristian when we do. As a matter of fact, exposing false gospels and those who teach them was a practice of Jesus himself. And he admonished the church and encouraged the church specifically at Ephesus for having done so. Now, Paul concludes his declaration of dependence by apparently answering accusations against him, uh, accusing him of basically morphing his message to whatever it was people wanted to hear. To be an ear tickler would basically be the accusation that is implied here of Paul being a man pleaser. And Paul answers in paraphrase, listen, listen to this this morning, tune in. 
Listen. You can't be a slave of God and please man simultaneously. This was Paul's answer. You cannot be a slave of God and live to please men. Now, the word bondservant is the Greek word doulos. And it's been, I don't want to say it's been watered down, but it's been softened to uh, something that was a reality. A bondservant was someone who would hire themselves out basically as a slave to work off a debt that was owed by them, or they would simply attach themselves to a wealthy family and work for them and therefore be cared for as well as their family. But the word isn't the word for doulos, or isn't the word for bondservant. It's the word for slave. That means a person who is the property of another individual. Now, of course, slavery has some negative connotations, and rightfully so. It was an injustice in our country, amen? But listen, when your master is God, you have to look at the word through an entirely different lens. When it's the blood of Jesus that purchased you, you have to look at the word doulos through an entirely different mindset. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? What's his answer? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is where? In you. you. Whom you have from who? God. God. And you are not what? Not your own. Why? You were bought at a price. And therefore, since you are the property of another, who's smarter than us, since you are the property of another, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Listen, Christian sin. Didn't think I'd get much from that anyway. But Christian sin. I remember that time I did. Those times. Christians fail. But. Our beliefs do not lead us to redefine scripture or rewrite apostolic doctrines. Our failures, I should say, do not lead us to redefine our beliefs or rewrite apostolic doctrines. When we sin and when we fail, the blood of Christ still cleanses us from all sin. For it is what was used to purchase us by the Father so that we can become his own. Now, here's the last thing, and it's just kind of a word of encouragement and reminder, because we've all messed up. And that's why Christians down through the ages have asked time and again, I don't know if I'm really saved. Well, we don't question the sufficiency of the blood of Christ to save our souls, right? There's ample evidence to know that we are saved, even when we're in a dry season or feeling downcast or discouraged by the events of life or the things happening in the world. And uh, one of them being the Holy Spirit is in you. Therefore, we can have confidence that we are his. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, here's our last point in segue to communion. You cannot lose what you could never earn. You cannot lose what you could never earn. 
Now, there's been a lot of debate over the years about eternal security, and I think some of it is uh, forced onto or blamed upon Calvinism, and they see it a little bit differently. But I happen to believe that when the Lord saves you, we cannot find in Scripture the doctrine of unreconciliation. You can't use Saul in the Old Testament as an example because he didn't have the Holy Spirit in him. The Holy Spirit came on him, just like it came on David. That's something exclusive to the Christian church. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And that's all the difference in the world. Because Ephesians 1.13 says, when you have the Holy Spirit, that is a guarantee, a down payment of your future inheritance. So listen, Christian, if you have blown it, or wait a minute, since you have blown it, get up. Stand up, brush yourself off, and get back to serving God and repent of your sin. Amen? That's all right. Because you can't lose what you didn't earn in the first place. It is the gift of God. And if our salvation's maintenance is dependent upon our own behavior, then it's not free. It's earned. And if he gave it to you without merit, it will continue when we live in a manner that is unworthy. And I don't know about you, but I am thankful for that because I've done some stupid stuff in my Christian life. Yeah, I figured you guys would leave me hanging up here with that one. Now, Romans 5, 6 through 11, and we'll get to the table this morning. When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. That's all us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God, a distinction between us and every other uh, existent living being. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Now listen to what Paul adds. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, that's kind of a, but wait, there's more clause. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In other words, things have been made made right between us and the creator of all things. Well, listen, the time of communion we're about to enter into represents something that has no parallel in human history. No equal in the realm of eternity. It is something so amazing, angels desire to look into it, according to 1 Peter 1.12. What is it that amazes them that is unparalleled in history or unparalleled in history or unequaled in the realm of eternity? The gospel. That while we were yet sinners... Christ died for the ungodly, reconciled them to himself, and we remain reconciled by his life, even though we falter and fail as God's chosen. Amen? Amen. Do you see why Paul took such a strong stand against false teaching? It was robbing people of their souls and moving people away from the grace that is to be found in Christ Paul took a stand, Jesus took a stand against gospel defilers and perverted and perverters, and we should take the same stand because there is nothing that parallels 
the goodness of God manifested in the cross of Christ and his demonstration of love for us. Now, this morning, as we share the elements together, they represent far more than just a moment in time. They represent more than a few hours between uh, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. on April the 6th, 32 A.D. They represent something that lasts for an all, all of an eternity. They represent a reconciliation with God, having been separated by sin from him. They represent ownership. They represent the purchase price for our salvation. They remind us of the necessity of the humanity of Christ while he veiled his glory momentarily yet remained fully God. And it reminds us of the purchase price being the shedding of blood without which there is no remission of sin. This is a monumental moment. Unparalleled. There's nothing like what we're going to remember at this point in time. And that's what Jesus said he wanted to be done. As often as you do this. Now, now listen. He didn't say do this often. He said as often as you do this. Remember me. That's what this is all about. So what do we remember today? While we were yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for you. He died for me. And you know, I think every communion time, uh, and that's why people have asked over the years, well, you know, Pastor Chuck used to do communion every month, or he had it on every, what was it, the first Wednesday of the month or something like that? First Wednesday of the month. Why don't you do that? Or, Or how come we don't have it? You know what? Because... And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I love Pastor Chuck. And I think you're doing well if you follow in his steps, right? But listen, for me personally, I think we need to do communion as the Lord leads. And I do believe that this is an appropriate day. And uh, in all the excitement, uh, Pastor Dave and I were on the phone the other day, and uh, he said, hey, do you think we ought to do communion? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, because this is all about thanks. It's about thanks for being reconciled to the Father. It's a thanks for the continuation of that reconciliation. Even though between the moment we said yes to Jesus and the moment he comes to get us, we're going to mess up, we're going to blow it, we're going to misrepresent him, we're going to do things that are stupid. You can get in on this at any point in time. We remain his. Why? Because he bought us. We're fully paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad that, you know, our our salvation didn't come with a uh, gift receipt? In case you wanted to, or somebody wanted to trade it in or return it. It's non-refundable or non-returnable, I should say. When he saves you, you're saved. How do we know? The Holy Spirit's in you. We have so much to say thank you for. And, you know, these are solemn moments. Communion is a solemn moment. But we also have to remember that on the same, this is one of the most amazing things about what Jesus told the Apostle Paul about what happened in the upper room. 
and I focus on it almost every time we have communion because it's just stunning. On the same night that he was betrayed, he broke bread and gave thanks. He passed a cup of blessing to his brethren. He didn't say, you know, after what Judas did, I'm going to need some time to work through this. <laughs> On the same night that he was betrayed, he gave thanks. He passed a cup of blessing. You know, maybe you're going to take communion on the same day you messed up bad. Oh, man, it got quiet in here. <laughs> maybe you're going to take communion the day after you messed up bad or the same week that you messed up bad. Or maybe communion is going to precede you messing up bad this week. I pray it doesn't. But you're still his. You've been bought. Paid for in full. You know, I say that this ought to be a time of doing exactly what Jesus did on the same night that he was betrayed. Give thanks. Let's thank God for saving our souls. Amen. Amen. Thank him for putting on a human body that would have the capacity for death. Thank him that he would pay the ultimate price for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it's only blood that can redeem blood and therefore make us family. And here's one of the great things that I... I love about what God has done for us. You know, we often talk about, you know, blood relatives. You know, families are tight most of the time. And it's blood relatives that you are closest with. Well, I submit to you this morning that at the cross, we became blood relatives. And that's why we enjoy the fellowship that we have. That's exclusive to us. We have so many things to say thank you for that are represented in this little bitty cup and the little wafer that we're going to share together. Now, listen, they're not going to turn into the body and blood of Jesus. Hello? They're not going to turn into the body and blood of Jesus, but they're meant to turn our minds toward the body and blood of Jesus. So think about that as the guys come forward and pass out our little, we're not going to pass trays. We've got, uh, you know, of course, we never want to do anything to get in trouble. Well, I guess you're going to come forward and get them? Is that what's, what's going to no, happen? Everybody should have one. Oh, you already have them? Yeah. Oh, well, I just didn't give you gee, what do I, I get? Apparently, I need two. So <laughs> hopefully, this is for second service. But. Anybody not have one? Anybody need? All right. Let's take the little wafer off the top and give thanks. Father, we thank you for your body, which was broken for us. We thank you, Lord, that you knew full well what was coming when you willingly came in the likeness of sinful flesh, knowing that those whom you came to would not receive you, knowing they would falsely arrest you and accuse you and execute you, and that the Romans would be a vessel of death as you came into the world for that very purpose. You didn't shy away from the cross, though you despise the shame of it, your word tells us. So Lord, we're here to say thank you. Thank you for coming in the likeness of us, physically, so that you could die for us, so we could live eternally. We're grateful this morning for all that this represents. We thank you, Lord, that you came and you lived and you proved your deity 
from the moment your ministry began to when you publicly ascended into heaven before eyewitnesses. And we thank you, Lord, that as the angel told those staring towards heaven, this same Jesus will so come in like manner. And we thank you that we will be with you. You came to get us, to take us where you are through your broken body and poured out blood. And for that, we say thank you this morning. We're grateful and we do indeed remember what you've done for us. Let's partake together. And Father, we also recognize that as your son passed the four cups of the Passover meal, and after the appropriate hymns were sung from the Psalms, that he took the cup of redemption, the cup of reconciliation, and passed it among his brethren, whom he handpicked, Lord, and chose just as you have chosen us. And therefore we are grateful, Lord, that this cup represents life through your death. We thank you that you foresaw and foretold this through Leviticus, Lord, and the words of your law, that this was a necessity. And Lord, that for 1,500 years, Israel was told an innocent victim would shed their blood as a covering for sin. And we thank you, Lord, that this is not something that has to be repeated year after year or communion after communion, but you died once and for all. And we thank you for those words, that final phrase uttered from the cross to tell us die. It is finished. So Lord, we are grateful of what this represents. But Lord, we are mindful of the suffering that you endured on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. So we thank you for your blood. We thank you for this cup and what it speaks of. And we thank you, God, that we do not have an appointment with wrath because you came into the world to save our souls. We thank you, we remember, and we partake now together in Jesus' name. And Father, again, we are so very grateful for this time. And Lord, I pray over those in the room and those watching online, God, that we wouldn't fall prey to what the enemy is trying to do, trying to silence us and trying to make us look unloving and unmerciful by pointing out that there are things that have the same vocabulary, but a completely different dictionary that are robbing men of their souls. So Lord, help us to be, as Jesus was described by John, full of grace and truth, because there's only truth that can make men free. So we thank you again for our launch into Galatians. We pray over our future times and studies together. And we thank you, Lord, for this location that we can now meet in. And I thank you for all who are present here today and online. Bless them now as they serve you, the only one worthy of glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.